into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So how could there be that kind of oneness? How could there be unity between Jews and Gentiles? Well, that unity is possible because God's grace eliminates the worldly distinctions that that people often have, usually have, particularly the Jews. They they tended to think of them as, as better and special and didn't want much to do with the Gentiles. And so God made this possible. And one of the things you're going to see here, the other thing God's doing to make this possible is point number three, is that God gives His grace. His divine enabling makes this possible. So unity is based on grace. And you say, well, why do I need grace? Why does anybody need grace? Well, the Bible says that everybody is dead in their sins. And so as a result, mankind is an object of God's righteous wrath. And so because all mankind is born depraved, and that just means you're, you're totally corrupted by your sin, you need God's grace. That's why you need God's grace. That's the point of chapter, the first part of chapter 2 here. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Because look how God describes an unbeliever before salvation here in verse 1. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see God giving the grace to people who haven't merited it, haven't earned it, haven't haven't received God's favor in that way, but God gives them His grace nevertheless. God also gives faith, it says. He gives faith. God has to give us faith because we're not going to get it anywhere else. God has to reveal the mystery of the gospel for it to even be understood to us. It's interesting, you'll see the word mystery in Ephesians, uh, when that word mystery is is used in the New Testament, it just refers, it's not talking about somebody being murdered and then some detective has to figure out the murder. Okay? It's not one of those kind of mysteries, right? Th- this mystery in the New Testament is, is just referring to something that's impossible for you to understand without God's enabling. 
In fact, look what God says in chapter 1, verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9, you'll see this. It says that, that He is making known to us the mystery of His will. And notice it is according to His purpose. According to His purpose. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, this good news, is that kind of mystery. And God Himself, of course, is the one revealing it. He has to reveal this. And so praise God He did, because you and I would not have figured it out on our own. It has nothing to do with intelligence. It has nothing to do with your smarts. And that's why Paul prays for wisdom here. In Look at verse 15. Verse 15. Uh, as Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, which are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints." So what has God done? Well, in the first three chapters, He's united all Christians together in Christ. And so in those first three chapters, unity here is presented as a fact. God has made us one. And then you come to the last three chapters, then that unity is presented as the daily goal based on these glorious the, the glorious theology of chapters 1 through 3. It, it's something you have to live it out. It ha, you have to work toward this unity. You're still, you're still sinful, of course. So unity is, it can be difficult. And so as we come to the second major point, the focus is shifting from all these indicative statements, all these, these facts, all the theology and the doctrine and then it moves to commands. See, theology should always drive your methodology. And that's what, that's what Paul's going to do here. So, so look what, what should we do with this, these glorious truths of chapters 1 through 3? Well, basically, in chapters 4 to 6, Paul's exhorting us, hey, live out this unity that you have in Christ. Make it real. It should be genuine. It should be something that everybody can see. So, how does Paul exhort us in chapters 4 through 6 to strive toward unity? Well, there's five main points we'll look at here. Number one, Paul says, live a life worthy of our calling. Live a life worthy of our calling. So, after all those first three chapters, look, the first verse, chapter 4, verse 1, look what he says. By the way, when you see a word, therefore, you should be asking, what is it, therefore? It's, it's there because of the first three chapters. Because of this unity in Christ. The, the position that all believers have in Christ and all the spiritual blessings you have in Christ, this is how you have to live. This is how you must live. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's a calling for believers in Christ. What is that calling? What does God call you to do? It's a calling for you to display this unity that God has given to us. What does that look like? I'm glad you asked. What does this unity look like? Look at verse 2. Here's how it practically looks like. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There you go. Very practical stuff. We'll get into depth. We'll look at the individual trees in this beautiful forest later on. But the basic idea is you are to live a life that's worthy of this calling. You've been called into this church. You've been elected into the church. Then live like the church. (laughs) And one of the ways you do this is by building others up. That's point number two. Build others up. See, Christians have to display their unity by helping each other, encouraging one another, and building each other up. You have to put off your sin. And, and one of the sins particularly mentioned here is the sin of anger. So look what uh, chapter 4, verse 26 says. Chapter 4, verse 26. Uh, says, uh, Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. By the way, chapter divisions are not inspired I hope you understand that. Sometimes the, the, uh, the paragraph continues on to the next chapter. You're to build others up. See, if you're united to other Christians, then you're not going to abandon them. You're not going to be angry with them. You're not going to ignore other Christians. You're going to pour your life into other Christians. You're bonded to them. So live it, is what the Bible is telling us. And number three, make the most of every opportunity. Christians are to seek unity by living wisely with each other. You say, well, what's that like? Again, I'm glad you asked. Great question. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 15. Chapter 5, verse 15. You want to know how to make the most of every opportunity? Well, the Bible tells you. Chapter 5, verse 15 says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Christians should make the most of every opportunity in their homes, in their their workplaces. You, you see this lived out in the next few verses here. So it's, it's not just something that should happen within a church uh, service, for example. But Paul's, Paul's showing us here it's in the home, it's in the workplace as well. Look, look how he puts it here. Verse 22. Verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's how it carries over to other people in in chapter 6. It says that children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You say, well, what about the workplace? Here you go, verse 5. Here's the workplace. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will is to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So make the most of every opportunity, and then number four, persevere to the end. Persevere to the end. So Christianity is going to be seen then as Christians are standing with each other all the way to the end which is an exhortation that Paul actually gives four times in this passage here, starting in chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm... Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So you're to stand. In other words, you're to persevere to the end. How are you going to stand and persevere to the end? That can be difficult. Well, the Holy Spirit tells us here, basically, to put on the gospel. Put on the good news which is the armor of God. You need armor in order to persevere in battle. Now look look at the various armor here, starting in verse 14. Verse 14 mentions uh, the first one, which is uh, you are to, to have fastened on the belt of truth, and then having put on the breastplate of righteousness... And then as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's how you're going to do it. You don't do it in your own strength. You do it through God's enabling grace here. And then number five, rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in God's sovereignty. Now remember, as you you read this, remember this is a prison epistle. Paul's probably in Rome in prison. He's not a a young man. He's, He's an old man at this point. And what does he do? What does he do? Well, he prays. And then he also asked others to pray that God would make him fearless. Look at verse 18. He says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. It's a good prayer. Good prayer for you, not just for Paul. So Paul knew that courage was needed to continue. He wanted to end the race faithfully. He knew that God's Spirit had to provide what what was not coming to him naturally. And So what does he do? He did what we should do, and he prays for it. He asked for it. He knew that sitting in prison was his duty that was given to him by God. And so what does he do? He rested in God's sovereignty. How do you keep from going insane when you're in a situation that just doesn't make sense? The only way you're going to stay sane is is to rest in God's sovereignty. Do you believe that God is in control? Do you believe that God reigns supreme over all of His creation? It's going to be tested 
when you're sitting in prison and, and you have the type of personality that Paul has, I can imagine he's having a hard time just sitting there. He wants to be out ministering the gospel to people. Well, here's a good applicational message coming from Ephesians that I found helpful. Here's what it says, quote, As believers, we have every spiritual blessing with which to live a holy life that is consistent with who we are in Christ. You have it, folks. you got to live it. Now, Paul also tells us some things that you shouldn't do. Uh, so what should we not do? Basically this. Don't partner with darkness. Don't partner with darkness. So, obviously, unity is something that's very important in the Bible, very important to God. However, we shouldn't seek unity at all cost. There, There is a line that you can cross in that unity. There's a wrong kind of unity, and it's mentioned here in chapter 5, verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3. Notice it starts with the word, but. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. It's a command. So there is a wrong kind of unity. Partnering with darkness that is exemplified in these various kinds of sins that are mentioned here. So Paul, by the way, he's not suggesting the church's chief end is diversity. In fact, Paul warns against certain kinds of diversity. Uh, See, a congregation should never seek diversity if that means you have to tolerate sin. That's not his recommendation. In fact, look how Paul uh, justifies disunity here. There is a justification for disunity, and he starts talking about it here in verse 8, chapter 5, verse 8. He says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So, there is something that you should not do, and that's partner in darkness. And then as we've read these various commands, you might say, well, why has God done all this? Why did God do these various things? Why is he telling us to do these things? Why has God done all this? Number one, it's for the praise of his glorious grace.
grace. That's what he says in chapter 1. In fact, he says it at least four times. Did you notice that when we read it? We saw it in verse 6, 7, 12, and 14. Four times God says it's to the praise of His glorious grace. That's why God's done this. And then the second reason is He is showing His grace. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7, it says, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why He does it. There you go. Why has God done all this? Number three is for displaying His wisdom to all creation. Why did God intend for Paul to make these mysteries plain, to make them known? And the answer is found in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. By the way, when you see the word, so that, that's telling you the reason. Here's the reason, verse 10. So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. (laughs) There you go. To whom will His wisdom be made known? Paul says it's going to be to the creatures of God. Whatever those creatures are. Who are they? Well, probably angels and demons. Probably angels and demons. These creatures are out there. They're real. You you may never see them, but they're alive, and they're watching what God does in His creation. And God says, I'm making my wisdom known to those angels and those demons. God has the right to do that. He's displaying His wisdom to all creation. And there's a fourth reason why God has done all this, and it's glory in the church and in Christ forever. So in light of God's display of His grace and His wisdom, we can't help but praise God. That's, that should be the natural response to this. And so look what Paul says here in chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations for how long? Forever and ever. And then Paul says, Amen! Truly, truly, I agree, I believe this. Why did God make everything? It's for His own honor and glory. So my friends, God is calling you. He's calling you to reflect His glory. You are like, think of yourself as like a mirror reflecting God to a world, including Satan and the demons and the angels. You're reflecting His glory. How do you do that? By being united with one another. And by being united to Christ, and that unity is displaying God. Just let that sink in. That is powerful. And so, that's what Ephesians is about. And so we need God's grace. We need God's enabling for us to fulfill such a high calling. May God give you His grace to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this 
awesome book. Thank you for using the Apostle Paul, even though a sinner, a messed up sinner like us, we're, we're thankful for this, this amazing message. So may we see ourselves as you have called us to be in this book. May we understand our calling and how high of a calling it is. We are displaying you to your creation, to the angels and the demons and to the unbelievers in this world. And so when they see us, the church, may it be an accurate representation of who you are of your glory, your beauty, your awesomeness. Forgive us when the mirror cracks and when it has smudges and when the mirror is dirty and when the mirror seems to be turned around when the world can't even see anything, it seems like. Forgive us for being uh, not imitating you and not fulfilling our calling. May we understand that calling. We grow in your grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we understand your gospel more and more every day. And may we preach that gospel to ourselves every day. So it would, it would enable your, you would enable us to live out this calling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.